Nyata, hello. It's Alison here and I'm the pastor at Sanctuary. And we're based on Pequaran country in Warrnambool and we're an affirming congregation. Today I'm reflecting on Jesus' execution, the two criminals who die alongside him, and the promise of life in the garden. And you'll find the text in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 43. Last week, the Baptist Union of New South Wales and the ACT voted to effectively disaffiliate LGBTIQA plus affirming churches and to disaccredit such pastors, along with those churches and pastors who were committed to traditional Baptist values of freedom of conscience and congregational governance. It's only the latest in a series of denominations to seek to define itself through themes of sexuality and gender and to reject communion with churches and people deemed sinful. Now, this is an old, old practice, and we call it the scapegoat mechanism, and it works like this. We identify insiders and outsiders, or goodies and baddies, wheat and weeds, sheep and goats. And we create a temporary sense of unity and catharsis by rejecting the latter. Then we establish ourselves, at least for a little while, as righteous, worthy and good. And then the cycle starts all over again. This way of seeing and sorting the world affects how we hear and interpret everything, including the Jesus stories. And it especially affects how we interpret tonight's story. To recap, Jesus is crucified between two criminals. Perhaps they were freedom fighters. Perhaps they were simply thugs. Anyway, one mocks him but the other acknowledges his own sinfulness and asks Jesus to remember him. And Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What we usually hear and assume is that the mocking criminal died condemned, while the other, having acknowledged his sin, died forgiven and was guaranteed a place in heaven. To use the metaphor of the workers in the field, the repentant man never even goes to the field, let alone gets to work. Yet here he receives a full reward simply for turning to Jesus immediately before his death. So this text has generated a lot of writing and a whole lot of sermons about Jesus' scandalous act of forgiveness since he forgave even a hardened criminal who, at the eleventh hour, turned to Jesus. Well, such forgiveness is certainly scandalous, but if we look closely, we might discover that it's a whole lot more scandalous than we think. The scandal is in the Greek. In English, we no longer distinguish between singular and plural forms of the word you. In Greek, the words are quite different. And when we go back to the Greek text, we find a fascinating plural, a plural which is masked in English. For when Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise, the first you is plural. Now, he's just been talking with both criminals. And so when he says that first you, he's addressing both of them. He's saying, truly I tell you both, truly I tell y'all, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
And paradise is simply a Persian word meaning garden. So Jesus is telling them that they'll be in Eden, maybe, or the garden city of Revelation. Whatever, it's a beautiful garden and it's filled with God's presence. It's a place centred with eucalyptus and thyme, perhaps. It's a place of good fruit. It's a place of growth and innocence, diversity and renewal. And both criminals, perhaps even all people who hear these words, are promised life with Jesus in paradise today. Of course, if we believe that forgiveness is a transaction, we repent, we ask for mercy, and then God forgives, then the Greek cannot be right. If we believe that we earn God's love through our faith or our works or our behavioural codes or through heteronormative marriage, then it must be wrong. If we believe there are goodies and baddies in this world, if we pride ourselves on our own holiness or righteousness, then it's deeply offensive because I'm saying that the repentant and the unrepentant are both welcomed into paradise, and maybe even everyone else. How can this be? Like everything, it goes back to our understanding of God. We talk about God's unconditional love and acceptance, but most of the time we live as if it's conditional. If we just work hard enough and do the right thing and have a strong enough faith and go to church, if we are just good people, then we will be beloved and forgiven. Unlike those people over there, whoever those people are, but you can guess. Gay people, trans people, Muslim people, atheists, crackheads, scumbags, neoconservative radicals, Christian nationalists, addicted people, rebellious people, dirty people, divorced people, and women who speak aloud in church. But for followers of Jesus, love is not a transaction. God is love. That is the nature of God. God loves the people we identify as insiders and outsiders, the good and the bad, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus shows us just how far this unconditional love goes. For Jesus loves all the wrong people, all the religious outsiders and he locates God's kingdom among them. And even this isn't a reward for good behaviour. His love and forgiveness come first. Any behavioural change comes later and may not come at all. This has been the theme of Luke's story all along. Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings forgiveness. Jesus brings love. And these gifts are particularly given to those whom the world continually rejects. These are the promises which were sung around his pregnancy and birth by an unwed teenage mother, and then by heavenly beings and by stinking shepherds who were not welcome in town or temple. These promises were proclaimed in the synagogue at the outset of his ministry, as he announced good news for the poor, release for the captive, recovery of sight for those without vision, and freedom for the oppressed. And he said that these promises were fulfilled 
today. They were seeing his teaching and healing among the poor and the sick, among women, among Gentiles, and among other social and religious outcasts. And now, in this story, even at the point of death by execution, he shows nothing but love and forgiveness. To the crowd which demands his death, to the leaders who scoff at him, to the soldiers who humiliate and torture him, and to the criminal who mocks him. Father, he says, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So in his life, and even on the cusp of his death, Jesus shows that love and forgiveness are not meted out in little doses to people who have earned them. Instead, they are poured out lavishly, abundantly, upon friends and enemies, upon the just and upon the unjust, upon the peacemakers and upon the violent, upon the religious and upon the irreligious, and upon ourselves. There is nothing that anyone can do to earn this love and forgiveness. And there is nothing anyone can do to render themselves unworthy of these gifts. God knows the ugliness smuggled in every human heart. God knows the violence of the world, and yet God loves and loves and loves. And it's because God loves that Jesus shows us a new way to live, a way that we call the kingdom, a way of good news in which peace and freedom and gentleness and forgiveness are the cultural norms. Now clearly, this is not the world we mostly live in now, nor is it the world much of the institutional church is trying to insist upon. As long as we seek to earn God's love and to prove ourselves righteous, we will never embody the kingdom. As long as we preach that one criminal goes to heaven and the other goes to hell, as long as we keep defining insiders and outsiders, wheat and weeds, sheep and goats, we will not be living in God's culture. But if we can admit that we too are goats in sheep's clothing, and that we are already loved and already forgiven, and so is everybody else, then we cannot help but participate in God's joyful kingdom culture. For we'll no longer need to judge others or to prove our own righteousness or to insist on self-serving biblical interpretations or to use religion as an instrument of oppression. Instead, we will be free to love friend and stranger wholeheartedly and abundantly, just as God loves them and just as God loves us. Now for those of us who are convinced of our own righteousness, this is the scandal of grace. It is offensive to us that grace is unearned, and it's a scandal to us that grace is doled out in infinitely large measure to friend and enemy, straight and gay, Christian and atheist alike. But to the rest of us, to those of us who've looked in the mirror, and caught a glimpse of our own ugliness, our selfishness, our self-righteousness, our fearfulness, our hypocrisy, our desire to control. This is all very good news. 
but we cannot heal ourselves or our vicious impulses, nor can we make ourselves worthy of forgiveness. But we can accept the forgiveness, which is already ours, and we can accept and be filled with God's love. And when we do this, when we open ourselves to the gift that has already been given, we are transformed from the inside out. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are remade into the image of Christ and we become part of God's cultural renewal as it unfolds here on earth. So this, then, is life in abundance, a life of freely and wholeheartedly participating in God's kingdom culture, a kingdom which is already here, a culture which is already among us. Right now, we can spend time in the garden. Right now, we can sample the fruit. Does such generosity make us angry? Or can we enter into it with joy? Again and again, Luke describes God's kingdom as a party. It's a wedding banquet. It's a father holding a feast for a long-lost son. It's a widow inviting her neighbours over. And we are all invited. We can try to close it down, but we'll never be successful. We can mock it to the death. It will rise again at dawn. We can kick out all the people that we don't consider worthy, but God will lead them straight back in through another door. Even then, we can stand there with our arms crossed tight, mocking the host, criticising the other guests, hating the music, turning down every hot nibble while our tummies rumble, and loudly announcing that we don't drink. Or we can be in the middle of the wildly diverse crowd with our red shoes on, dancing and laughing and singing and talking and handing out bread, more bread, and pouring wine, more wine, and greeting every other guest with a hug. Take, eat, or turn it down. God's scandalous party is going on all around you. It is always already happening. Whether or not you participate is the only choice you have, because everyone, absolutely everyone, is already in the room. Even the queers, even the conservatives, and even me and you. Thanks be to God. Now there's always more to read on our website, and that's sanctuarybaptist.org. Sanctuary is funded entirely by members and supporters. If you'd like to support the work of this little church, you can make a donation via PayPal, and you'll find the details for this on the website. This week's reflection was prepared on the lands of the Peak Warring people of the Eastern Ma Nation, a land which was taken by force and has never been ceded. This week, we're having a cold snap, but in the garden, roses are in full bloom. Tussocks of poa grasses are sending forth great spouts of burgundy-tinted seed, and dragonflies, well, they're everywhere. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The peace of the land, earth, sea and sky, be with us all. Amen. <laughs>